0: Welcome to the Friday's subscribers-only edition of The Hub Dialogues, the podcast of The Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday-only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths, about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of The Hub Dialogues. Hey, Sean. How's it going?
1: Uh, good, Roger. How about yourself?
0: Excellent. We are a man down this week. Uh, Stuart Thompson is getting a much uh, well-deserved break. I understand, Sean, he's at a family cottage with like literally no Wi-Fi, no cellular. Uh, I, maybe he doesn't even need the Rogers you know, telecommunications <laughs> blackout today to enjoy a, a digital-free existence. And that's one reason, again, why we're... Short our editor-in- chief on this week's uh, roundtable
1: yeah he's uh, and he's missed quite a week, hasn't he, Rudyard? From uh, Patrick Brown's disqualification from the conservative leadership race to uh, Boris Johnson's sacking at westminster and and just late last evening, a uh, word of an assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. So um, to say nothing of the NHL draft for those listeners who are uh, hockey fans, um, quite a week for Stewart to have uh, retreated from
0: uh, from the world of of news. Yeah, I don't know if it's bad timing or good timing on Stuart's part, but Stuart, you're missed. We'll, we'll hear your dulcet tones uh, on the podcast next week. But yeah, let's start, um, Sean, with the conservative leadership race, because we had expected a, a kind of period here of the summer doldrums where we could kind of uh, all take a afternoon siesta and, you know, wake up once, uh, you know, the summer was over and we were gunned towards the final vote. But boy, uh, a big shoe landed this week in terms of the disqualification of Patrick Brown outright, seemingly irrevocable from the leadership race. What's your takeaway on this? And maybe, I mean, beyond the politics of it, what does it say at all about the conservative movement uh, at this moment?
1: Yeah, it's a a big deal. We can get into the likely consequences in terms of how the vote plays out in September, um, now that we're down a candidate and the field is less fragmented. Uh, in terms of the, the, the kind of broader observation, though, it, it, it seems to me It probably requires some thinking, Rudyard, about how we do these leadership races, in which candidates have these incentives to go out and sign up as many members as possible, irrespective of these people's kind of relationship or link to the party, which is oftentimes kind of tenuous. Um, That creates, uh, you know, oftentimes this incentive to, you know, essentially do whatever it takes in order to. Run up those numbers, especially if you start to hear um, rumors that some of the other candidates are are selling a lot of memberships. And so, um, you know, I, I think that probably for me is one of the bigger takeaways that we've this entire campaign, which was longer than initially expected, and then and then there was all of this pressure to sell memberships. Probably is something that requires a, a bit of a rethink in terms of how we. Do leadership races and how we create the conditions for people to feel a, a kind of investment in our political parties as institutions as opposed to kind of temporary real estate that you can buy in and, and buy out of um, in, a, in a kind of fleeting way. Um, what, what's your take, Roger?
0: Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about Boris Johnson in a, se- in a second, the back half of the show because a lot of interesting parallels. And one of them goes back to Canada, you know, that if the British Conservative Party wants to elect a new member now, they could do it entirely within their own caucus and bypass the party membership. But even if they go to the party membership, there's only 100,000 UK Conservative Party members. And you think of that in a, you know, a country of uh, what is the United Kingdom, 50 50 million plus? I mean, uh, something is odd about our our politics at this moment, where you have these parties that understandably are trying to be representative. Hey, that's, you know, they're a cornerstone, they're a building block of democracy, but they're really struggling. And, um, you know, the allegation of whistleblower has now come forward publicly, the allegations being made against Patrick Brown, and seemingly against him personally, is that you know, expenses were being run through a corporation. A corporation was paying this person as a consultant instead of the campaign. Again, that's the allegation that's been made. We'll have to see whether Elections Canada proves that out. And, you know, if, if in fact there is, at the end of the day here, uh, some kind of action on the part of Elections Canada. Um, but it does suggest to me that we're, we're in, as you say, this kind of arms race uh, yes. and the temptation on the part of all these parties to try to elide the rules, to try to probably rationalize behavior that just is demonstrably offside, uh, it becomes pretty tempting, it becomes pretty hard to resist. But Sean, if you were to blow up the model, you know, what's the way to go? I mean, one One approach, uh, you know if you look at Europe uh, and par- parties operate, there are, in a sense free members, you know very few barriers of resistance to membership in a political party. But maybe that goes counter to your idea that people should have some sense of longer term connection continuity, you know with the political group to which they belong and the leader, therefore that they're going to elect.
1: Yeah, that's right, Rudyard. Um, Listeners will know that the free membership model is something that the liberals did um, in the lead up to the 2015 election in which the party was trying to create some energy and momentum in order to go from third to first. It reflected a kind of inclusiveness that I think that um, then liberal leader Justin Trudeau and his team wanted to to try to convey. Um, But you're you're right. I've kind of come to the view um, that we ought to be moving in the opposite direction, that our parties can't just be hollowed out institutions that in effect can be taken over by people with pretty tenuous relationships to the parties or their fundamental values and ideas. I mean, let's, let's be concrete about this. The Republican Party was such a kind of hollowed out, ossified institution that Donald Trump, a lifelong Democrat with really no commitment to any uh, values or principles that had been articulated by Re- the Republican Party for, for decades, just walked in and, and took over. And, you know, there was no one around the table saying, listen, this party has institutions or pardon me, it has um, interests as an institution that go beyond a single election cycle and and we need to protect those interests. So I guess that's a long way of saying I've I've come to the view that we need to kind of make our parties stronger and more durable. And and that probably means actually making it harder for people to join parties and participate, as opposed to what we've seen in, in this leadership election, where. Uh, the Brown campaign and others are are kind of selling memberships to people who they hope will vote on September 10th. And then thereafter, they don't really give a damn about their ongoing relationship to the party.
0: Yeah, almost 600,000. I believe membership sold a, a record for the Conservative Party. And again, you just wonder, you know, as you say, what, what are the connections of these people to the party? Um, let's talk, let's shift a little bit to the politics, Sean. I mean, clearly this would set up A worst case scenario for Jean Charest, you know, the hope here had been that he and Brown, in a sense, uh, could, I assume, have some kind of deal, kind of Faustian bargain on the part of one of one of them to support the other. Uh, If, um, if, in a sense, uh, on the preferential ballot and ranking, their two combined memberships could could swamp Pierre Polyev, which looks to have slightly just around the 50% mark of, of memberships sold or active uh, to this point in the campaign. So is, is that an accurate assessment here or are there still challenges that the poly of camp could face um, in, the, in the months going forward to September's vote? I,
1: I share your, your assessment, Roger, that um, the, the, the principal obstacle standing in the way of a first ballot victory for Pierre Pagli. I've given um, both his membership sales and perceived kind of energy and momentum with the, the pre-existing membership, to say nothing of the parliamentary caucus, where I now I think he's, he's exceeded 50% in terms of endorsements. The, the main obstacle was always going to be a fragmented field. Um, and with Patrick Brown out of the race, uh, someone who I think was probably poised to finish second on the first ballot, uh you know, one can't help but think that this increases the likelihood that um Polyev will win on the first ballot. And if not, um mm-hmm. soon soon thereafter. I mean, maybe just to put it bluntly, if we have something like a head-to-head race against Jean Charest and Pierre Polyev, even if you account for Leslie and Lewis as a, a third place candidate at this point, um, polls tell us that Polyev, at least amongst conservative voters, to say nothing of the Canadian population as a whole, um, You you know, wins that uh 10 times out of 10.
0: Mm. Well, then let's let's just for the sake of it uh play this out a little bit. Okay, so Polyev does win. He's the leader. You're talking about a I don't know, is it too far to call it a kind of watershed moment in conservative party politics where you have a leader who is uh if not an avowed populist, has certainly run a campaign with a lot of you know, populist elements to it, both in the content of the policies put forward, but maybe more importantly, in this day and age, the kind of messaging, the, the approach. And we saw a display of that this week, John, with the poly of campaign coming out, I think surprising some people, um, somewhat Trump-like in, in singling out a, a single journalist for, you know, direct criticism, on the, and the media generally by default. Um, I don't know, Sean, I mean, is this a new conservative party that's emerging that's going to look a, a little bit more or maybe a lot more like the Republican Party of today, which has gone through a similar metamorphosis uh, over the last half decade?
1: Yeah, the, the funny thing about the poly campaign is notwithstanding the fact that by virtually any measure, it's been the frontrunner since almost day one. It has not run a frontrunner campaign at all. Um, You know, two weeks ago, I guess, he he walked with, um, you know, this controversial former member of the military uh, in Ottawa. You mentioned um, this week uh, in uh, his party, his his campaign rather, released a a statement uh, signaling out a, a particular journalist in effect saying, um, that under his leadership, the party will no longer kind of play ball with um, with what they perceive as is, is hostile uh, journalists. It, it is a, a kind of sharper uh, tone and approach, um, certainly relative to Aaron O'Toole, but I think you're, you're right to say um, more than we've ever seen before. I, I think that reflects in some ways um, the the energy within the party itself, Um um, and the big question that we've been talking about this podcast since day one is if if Polyev leans too much into that kind of stuff, does it um, stand in his way in terms of reaching a, a broader set of voters. Um, I'm going to turn to you because I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but if I can just make one point here, because I've seen a lot of traffic in recent days about this exchange with this particular journalist and um, you know, well, I wouldn't have advised the, the, the candidate to put out the statement he did for the reasons I've just described. I do think that journalists need to be careful about making themselves part of the story. Um, Yuval Levin, you know, the thoughtful American conservative thinker and scholar often says that one of the consequences of social media is that it's turned um, journalism into from a vocation or into a or trade into a, a platform um, for people to kind of project their, their, their ideas and their values. And, and it's not an accident that um, as that's occurred, um, trust in the media has fallen to historic lows. So I think the temptation to get on social media and, and you know blur the lines between journalism and opinion um, may be good for one's kind of personal profile, but I think it's bad for the institution as a whole. Maybe just put all of that to you, Rudyard. Take pick mm-hmm. out any any piece that you want from, you know, what the future leadership of the Conservative Party looks like um, with Pierre Polyev or the state of, of uh, the Fifth Estate uh, in, in <laughs> Canada these days.
0: Yeah, well, two quick comments. I think on the Fifth Estate, you know, a very smart editor once said to me about a columnist that was kind of uh, going AWOL, at least in his editor's view at a major Canadian daily newspaper. He said, you know, This person's writing for the internet. They're not writing for the paper anymore. And I think what's happened is a lot of journalists are writing for Twitter. And I think a lot of journalists count their success. Unfortunately, the metrics that we use now are how many Twitter followers do you have? You know, what's your, you know, what is that uh, dopamine response like? Uh, You know, Pavlov's dog pushing the button every, every, uh, every couple hours, on on your Twitter feed. Uh, I, I think that is affecting the media and I think journalists need to be careful about that we're certainly careful about that, you know, at the hub. Um, kind of demand that we all write and speak in a kind of institutional voice because that's I think what people are looking for they're not looking for someone's subjective analysis they're looking for something that is um, a point of view and they can take it or leave it but at least they're getting some coherence from a news organization or organization that's trying to put information together in ways that are, are useful to people on the poly of campaign. I guess I, I just have this residual worry, you know, that if, if you take the argument and again, it might not be right, but if you said that Canada was five years behind the United States in terms of uh, center right politics, there was an assumption when Trump was first elected by the Republican party that he could be controlled that the yes. people that he brought into the party were a fringe, uh, that there was a move back to the center, and that everything would be okay. And boy, uh, it wasn't, right? Um, And that was partly Trump. He didn't want to move to the center. Uh, But it was also the changing character of the party itself. I guess that's maybe my concern. I think Paul is a very sophisticated politician. He will you know, trim his sails and tack and jibe as he as he needs to politically to win the next election. But it's about the composition of a lot of these new members who have joined the party, who may not well be instant members, and frankly, who are owed some standing. Uh, if they do succeed in electing him, they are owed some standing in the party, and they're going to have a say on on policies. And I think some of those views on the on the membership numbers that. The type of people who get a sense that he's attracted to the party a lot of their views are a fair way out of the mainstream to be charitable about it and That's a- um yeah and i just think it, it, it could be challenging for him to try to come to the center you know with that with those people around him and that political energy and movement and those people themselves may have something to say they may need to be reckoned with and we shouldn't be Sanguine or too complacent about the extent to which you know the party is changing.
1: Such a good point and it comes back to um, our earlier conversation about um, the, the party having its own set of institutional interests, you know, not to um, get all Burke in here but you know parties um, aren't just about fighting a single election, they have a history a present and a future. And, um, you know, I think one of the consequences of this whole leadership race ought to be a kind of rethink on the part of the Conservative Party and other major political parties about how um, they can do a better job of, of protecting um, those institutional interests, which in a way is a good segue to our, our next topic yeah. about, uh,
0: about Boris Johnson's sacking. Let's do it. So let's take a quick break. we right back on the other side to talk about the big political developments of the UK this week. And, in fact, maybe some signposts, some smoke signals for what they could say about Canada and our own politics here. Back in a moment. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a Hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Hey, you're listening to the Friday Hub Roundtable. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor at large. Stuart Thompson, our editor chief, hopefully is not listening to the podcast because he's supposed to be on a dock on a cottage without Wi-Fi. That's why he's told us that he was unable to participate in today's taping. So if I hear that he's listened to it, Sean, I'll know. All know that uh, we have a Pinocchio uh, Pinocchio <laughs> moment on our hands. I doubt it. I'm sure he's diligently fly fishing or doing something good to clear his mind uh, to come back to his editor's chair in a week's time and join us. But let's talk about uh, UK politics. Big, big week. Um, my takeaway, Sean, was just uh, there's something that always just impresses me about the strength and the the vitality of British parliamentary democracy its conventions especially the unwritten conventions that it has and the way that everyone including boris johnson at, at the end and 48 short 48 short hours you know hewed to those conventions and what we've witnessed yes is a uh, a change in uh leadership a change uh, a violent one um you could say it as elements of a of uh you know of a, an overthrow. What did he call it? The herd. The you know getting pushed out by the herd. But at the same time, boy, Sean, does it ever work there? Are they ever able to express the political moment and then shape the individuals and the political reality to that moment through these again beautifully unwritten conventions that have existed now for centuries?
1: Yeah, I agree with all of that. You know, for the past several weeks, even months, Boris Johnson has been something like the Monty Python character who, you know, was cut or wounded, but kept going. Um, but all, and ultimately, as you say, his, his parliamentary colleagues were the ones who put the knife in, and they put the knife in in the front of him, didn't they? Um, unlike sometimes where we see in Canada, where the, there's a tendency to try to put it in the back of the leader through anonymous um, sources and, and, and all of the rest. One of the reasons why this experience is so kind of triggering for Canadians in a way is they have the same system of government, right? We can't sort of dismiss it as, well, you know, the congressional system or the presidential system of the United States is different and it's apples to oranges. You know, here's a case where we have a a Westminster model where the, the parliamentary caucus is exercising real accountability um for its leader and in this case uh, making the extraordinary decision to to sack the leader and the, the sitting prime minister because mm-hmm. of um, his failure to to be accountable to them. you know juxtapose that uh, with the Canadian experience where we've had a series of scandals at, at the federal level, no liberals uh MPs speaking out against the prime minister. the, the, the prime minister was, let's not forget. We doesn't know how many times he wore blackface um, uh, in his life um, because he did it so frequently. It sounds like, and yet no liberal MPs um, ever, um, either uh, on the record or off the record, seemingly called him out. Uh, the kind of tepidness um, of can, of Canadian parliamentary democracy relative to the UK is 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 striking in normal circumstances, but particularly striking. Um, this week in light of of what we've seen um you know i guess i put it to you uh because johnson is such an interesting figure one that uh that even canadian conservatives at different times have taken an interest in does he represent something of a model moving forward i think for instance of the the progress that the party made under his leadership to win to breach the so-called red wall and reach um traditional labor voters what do you think's behind his um ultimate downfall here? What uh, what um what what's behind his his uh, mm-hmm. his sacking?
0: Well, it goes to part of what you said. I just think it's much higher standards. I think there are just much higher standards for leadership. I mean, you could look at at you know not just Blackface, but snc Lavellin, and now this latest scandal around you know allegations that you know Bill Blair and others were uh, you know uh, prodding and controlling the RCMP to. You know, influence and affect the the tragic uh, investigation of the mass shooting events uh, in Nova Scotia in order to um, you know advance their gun policy agenda. I mean, uh, we we just have such a low standard here, um, and it's a shame. It's as if we don't expect better, but I think that's too easy an answer. I, I think it's that Britain as the you know, the so-called mother parliament, uh, they actually have some, the parliamentary party is real. And I, maybe, you know, maybe many Canadians, I don't, you don't expect people to understand this, but you know, the prime minister is the head of the parliamentary party. Okay. (laughs) Like you serve as prime minister because you command a majority, uh, in, in the house. It's not because you were elected by, you know, the most number of delegates at a party convention or, you know, members in a ranked ballot as the Conservative Party will soon, you know, experiment with, uh, you know, this September. Um, Instead in Canada, I think what we have is we have these parties that are constructed through Elections Canada and that, you know, uh, function around this kind of cult of leadership, um, where any disloyalty, any any kind of uh, sign of anything other than Obsequious uh, attitude towards the, uh, you know, the prime minister especially, but even just generally, the leader of the party is is the end of your career. It is a dead end in politics in Canada to behave that way. Yet, look at the UK. Look at this uh, this 1927 committee of backbenchers. They were ultimately the ones that that showed Boris Johnson the writing on the wall It's just it's it's unfathomable in the Canadian situation that a prime minister would ever be cajoled or cowed uh into resignation by his or her backbench. And you could say, well, you know, is that a good thing or not? Well I think it is a good thing because I think you want the diffusion of power. Systems where you have the diffusion of power, I think, are generally better than those that don't. And that's, you know, one of the things that the Founders, the Founding Fathers of the United States understood, and they did it explicitly by creating different branches of government. We don't. We don't have that same division of powers. What we're supposed to have are these variety of parliamentary conventions, written and unwritten, that ensure the diffusion of power. But we've so forgotten them, either selectively or just through collective amnesia, that we've ended up with this kind of imperial model, a model of leadership in Canada in terms of majority prime ministers that frankly, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin would recognize. It's not particularly democratic. I don't think it's particularly aligned with our, our history um, in terms of our evolution as a democracy. Um, and it's really regrettable. And I, I think Boris Johnson was admirable in, this, in the decision he made and, and yes, he was criticized because he waited 48 hours. <laughs> it's just a, it's laughable. It's risable to think, you know, anything similar could ever happen in the Canadian context. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's my rant for the week.
1: No, it's well said. Uh, well, well taken. Um, y- you know, it, it's often forgotten Rudyard that in our parliamentary system, nobody votes for the prime minister, right? They, they vote for MPs at their local, in their mm-hmm. local riding, and, and that's ultimately how we we form governments. And yet, uh, when we get to the kind of functioning of our government and our parliament, uh, it's it's like we revert to a, something rese- more resembling a presidential system. Let me just take up Johnson and his administration for a second, mm-hmm. though, because as I mentioned, I think, um, as Canadian conservatives have gone through three election losses in a row, they've been looking around the Anglosphere for models or insights um, you, you mentioned for instance um, that we've seen some Canadian conservatives sort of take on the the mannerisms or the the poise of more populist politicians in the US and elsewhere I think there's been a lot of interest in what Johnson did in in the 2019 election um, Aaron O'Toole listeners will know even brought some British strategists in in the last Canadian election to try to uh, replicate, the success that the British Conservative Party had with traditional liberal voters. Um, you know, the, the Johnson government uh I think record was mixed at best. He'll he'll you know forever be attached to to Brexit, of course. Um, the pandemic response had some pluses and minuses. I think generally it was an underwhelming government, which probably reflected his own kind of personal disorder and kind of tendency towards chaos. But I think a big question in terms of who replaces him is whether it's a a, a new leader who both shares his capacity to reach beyond traditional conservative voters, or his commitment to do so. And, um, you know, I think that's a a big outstanding question. There's a political realignment going on in the Western world where uh, traditional uh, labor voters are moving to the right in part because of kind of social and cultural issues and Johnson probably better than anyone seized on that and it will be to the kind of detriment of the British Conservative Party if they don't maintain some of those insights and uh, approaches you you know you mentioned in a a earlier exchange we had Rudyard that in his outgoing speech um, Johnson talked about his commitment to so-called leveling up agenda the idea that um, we shouldn't just focus on inequality amongst individuals we should focus on geographic inequality or regional inequality, which is something very relevant in Canada where we have so much economic uh, activity and investment innovation job creation concentrated in, in a small number of places. So I, I guess that's a very long way of saying um, Johnson had to go it seemed you know it's been inevitable it seemed like for for some time um, but it would be a mistake for the British conservatives to completely, Dismiss, I think some of the the lessons and insights from his administration, and and similarly for conservatives in Canada and elsewhere um, to to reject mm. those as well, because I th- I think there is a lot to be learned from the 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 2019 election win. There, what, what's uh, what what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, well, just for the sake of you know a different point of view, I I, I think it's I think you have to be careful about drawing conclusions from the 2019 election because it was just it was a referendum on Brexit, and a lot of Labour voters were comfortable with the idea of uh, Jeremy Corbyn and his inability to be clear about whether or not the Labour Party supported you know, a hard Brexit for the United Kingdom or not. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think Boris Johnson's big flaw, like in some ways Trump's too, and it's the flaw of many populist leaders, is he, you know, he had a deep need to be loved by the public. And I heard an amazing statistic, just a small, you know, one of those small little data points that makes you think that the Johnson government in the last six months, in the response to rising inflation, in a very unconservative way, decided to provide significant subsidies directly to um, citizens in the UK spent more money than the entire United Kingdom government's response to the great financial crisis. England's uh, United Kingdom's public finances are a mess. And it's reflected in the plunging value of the pound, uh, skyrocketing debt. And it's a form of conservatism that really worries me. And it was one that was you know practiced and pioneered in a way by Trump, which is to engage in, Large-scale tax expenditures to, in a sense, buy votes. If people like receiving money from government. <laughs> we all learn that. Uh, that's nothing new. But then, at the same time, uh, cutting taxes. And I just think it's as it's it's conservatism's version of modern monetary theory. You know, it doesn't have an acronym yet. Uh, we should invent <laughs> one. But it is a spurious and politically opportunistic agenda that should have no place on the part of uh, the mental headspace of thinking conservatives. And Boris Johnson was a consummate practitioner of it. And the England and the United Kingdom that the next conservative leader and prime minister will face is in a mess. And it is an incredibly challenging moment for this country in no small part uh, because of Boris Johnson's actions. Would it have been worse if Jeremy Corbyn had been prime minister? Absolutely. But just like Doug Ford isn't really a conservative, and just like Trump wasn't really a conservative, at least on fiscal issues, Johnson fits that mold, and I find it harder and harder to identify conservative leaders anywhere in the Anglosphere who still believe... To some extent, in fiscal probity, and, and an agenda for growth that doesn't involve simply the transfer of funds either to government and onto individuals, or increasingly, dangerously, directly to individuals.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. the The last one was Jason Kenney, and we know <laughs> we know what happened uh, to him. Yeah, I think you're right. that That's probably a conversation for another week, but. Um, this question of how conservatives can maintain their commitment to fiscal conservatism, as you say, there's you know, there's not a lot of difference between spending money we don't have and cutting taxes with money we, we don't have. Um, and at the same time, uh, orient uh, their policy agenda to better reflect um, this political realignment that's been occurring and the kind of changing circumstances and interests of these new members of the conservative coalition, um, not just in Canada, but as you say across the Anglo sphere, is something mm-hmm. that um, I think a lot of conservative politicians, but also conservative policy thinkers, are are, are still grappling with. And and at least for yeah. now, and, and
0: again, Sean, I, I want to be clear that I'm not espousing some kind of you know cruel, cruel, steely eyed uh, austerity. The the argument here is a well known one, which is highly indebted societies are unproductive. They are burdened by their debt obligations in ways that make their economies sclerotic and unable to fund the generous social programs uh, in any kind of long-term sustainable fashion that so many people in our society rightly deserve and that I personally would like to see extended on a generous basis to those uh, in need. So this isn't about returning to some, you know, post-great financial crisis austerity agenda. It's to recognize that when you engage in this kind of profligacy, there are no free lunches in economics. It catches up with you. And as it catches up with you, as we're seeing in Canada, your excellent piece uh, this Friday, showing the extent to which, you know, government jobs have really completely outstripped private sector and self-employment job growth since the pandemic, creating, yes, a talking point for the liberal government that jobs have become roaring back, but those are jobs, you know, facilitated by a public service using the revenues of it dwindling as a proportionally uh, private sector to pay for them. I mean, this is not a serious way to run a 21st century economy.
1: Yeah, yeah. thank you for uh, for mentioning um, the article. Um, we're speaking on um, July 8th, so we just had um, labor force survey numbers from uh, from the month of June. If you update the data in the, the piece that we published today Rudyard, 92% of all jobs created since February 2020, which was the month before the pandemic started uh, are concentrated in the public sector um which
0: 92 percent which is wow.
1: question begging about the the both the robustness but also as you say the sustainability of our of our post-pandemic recovery um uh lots lots to talk about <laughs> yeah, as uh, always um great to catch up with you and and Likewise. uh and you know we'll be hopefully we'll have our uh Editor in chief back next week to keep us on the
0: the straight and narrow. Let's do it, Sean. Have a terrific weekend, Hub listeners. Uh, check out Sean's Sean's piece today. He put a lot of effort into it. Uh, it's a big, meaty read, but boy, you walk away from that with a sense that we're Europeanizing our economy in Canada, but not in the ways that lead to great wine, lovely cheese, and baguette. <laughs> Instead, they lead to ways that involve bloated. Uh, public sectors that uh, are going to be a significant drag on economic growth and opportunity going forward. So let's wrap this up, Sean, and we'll do it all again next Friday. Good talking to you, Rudyard. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of the Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue topic and idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular friday subscriber only hub dialogues please send us an email to info at thehub.ca also check out our website www.thehub.ca for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and canada's future while you're there If you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a Hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday Subscriber Only Hub Dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.